When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. This episode is a Spike Lee joint. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here and James here. Today, we're going to do a director spotlight on Spike Lee, one of the most influential directors of all time, who's made some incredible films, including Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, She's Gonna Have It, The Five Bloods most recently, as well as many documentaries, music videos, commercials. He is just an icon in film and TV history. Yeah, he's he made a huge mark in, in film in America in a massive way in the 90s and 2000s and the late 80s. And he is an incredibly original, unique voice in filmmaking that we never had before he showed up. And he's just also like a big student of film. Like his filmmaking comes from classical filmmaking, traditional, film, traditional filmmaking styles. And you can see his love for the history of film in all of his movies. Yeah, and I mean, we grew up in the 90s. And if you watch Spike Lee's old movies, especially like Do the Right Thing, and he you got can game. see the yeah. influence that his films had on culture was insane. It was massive. It was everywhere in the 90s and obviously the late 80s. But, you know, he, like you said, he's he's such an important filmmaker. He's made so many great, great movies. And also, again, documentary work. He's made one of the most important documentaries I think I've ever seen is The Four Little Girls. That is a very powerful documentary about that bombing. But other than that, he's he's got a, a huge range when it comes to filmmaking. He can do pretty much any genre. He's dabbled in different genres. He's even done a, a South Korean remake with Old Boy. But um, he's he's done a little bit of everything. And again, he's he has a very similar career. I I think to Martin Scorsese. I always like to compare them two together. They they have very similar careers. They both tell stories about where they come from. Specifically, Spike with Brooklyn. They both direct music videos and documentaries as well as. Uh, uh, theatrical films. Both have made a ton of movies and in, and acted in some. Spike's acted in more of his movies than Martin Scorsese's acted in his movies. Yeah. Spike writes most of his scripts, whereas Marty used to write scripts more more often. He's really only done, like, recently Silence was the last script I think he wrote, and before that he hadn't read a movie since, like, two thousand the early 2000s, I believe. But they're both cinephiles and students of film. They're actually very good friends as well. They became friends after Spike who has always he's been a long-standing film professor at NYU. He did a screening of Mean Streets in the 90s, and then uh, he invited Scorsese to that screening. And since then, they've become very good friends. And they do have a lot in common. They also have um, their own muses, uh, like Spike. Uh, very very much Denzel was his, has been his muse for a very long time, and even Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Jackson has, have been in a lot of his movies. John Turturro, too. John Turturro, yeah. And then... Scorsese, obviously, Leo and De Niro and, and Pesci as well. And so they both work with uh, their friends. They both work with uh, regular collaborators as well as in front of and behind the camera. And they both, when you think of them, you think of New York, especially Spike, because Marty has done so many movies outside of the setting of New York, but he's done plenty in New York. But Spike, 
he injects the the culture of New York, especially the Brooklyn culture of New York, and even more specifically the Bed Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn where he grew up. And I think that what Spike does has done with cinema and his films is he's he's always tried to portray his culture in film that had never been seen before, specifically the Brooklyn culture, uh, where where he grew up, his environment, what his neighborhoods were like, and those are things he never saw in film. And that's what he brought to, to cinema. And black voices, black stories, black characters. And he thinks it's a duty to himself that as long as he is marketable and still people are still going to see his movies, he thinks it's a duty to himself and to his culture to keep telling black stories and black characters and making black films. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedule. So you would have known that we're doing a Spike Lee Director Spotlight today. Personalized videos, Patreon shouts in the show as well as weekly bonus episodes and we'll be doing all our godfathers also get an extra bonus episode each month and they get to pick that themselves we also just launched our podcast masterclass online course so for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show the link is podcast masterclass.teachable.com or go to our website raiders of the lost podcast.com it's right there on our homepage. So feel free to also check out all of our sources of content, our merch, custom movie posters. Thanks for following, listening wherever you are around the world. Hit the notification bells. Now let's get back into the career of Spike Lee. So Spike's got one Academy Award, which he won for Best Adapted Screenplay of Black Klansman. But he's one of the many great directors who've never won an Oscar for Best Directing, you know. Marty was on that list for 40 years until he went for The Departed. I mean, we're talking about Stanley Kubrick, Chris Nolan, David Fincher. The list is huge of, of influential, huge, impactful directors. Tarantino. Never, Tarantino, who yeah. have never won an Oscar for Best Director, and Spike is 100% on that list. And he actually has a lot. He He's similar to Tarantino where he was acting in his early films. Like Tarantino was acting in major roles in his films, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And then Spike... Um, he he never made himself the lead of his movies, but he was always a, a strong character. You could say do the right thing. He's Mook, probably the lead. Mookie's of that movie. a lead, but that's more like an ensemble because Sal yeah. is made as a major character as well. True, I would say that's very much an ensemble piece. But Mookie might have the most screen time. You'd have to, I'd have to add it up, but he definitely was portraying his his himself in his films. I think to just bring that voice that he knew so well. He's also a very personable guy, a very unique guy. Uh, he, his roles are usually very funny and personable and relatable. And I think he did a great job in his roles. But then he also learned, I think that he, when he began working with Lawrence Fishburne and then Denzel, he's like, wow, these guys are so talented. And like Tarantino, working with talented actors, realized I'm going to put the best actors possible as the lead roles in my films. And then just eventually he's like, also he's, he's got a, a good amount of screen time in Malcolm X, but still that's Denzel's movie. So True. I think he was like, when he found great collaborators, he he gave them the, the leading roles. And he works really well as a side character. Yeah. And I love how in like, she's got to have it. He plays that character, Mars Blackman, which was eventually used. Was it a Nike, Michael Jordan commercials? Yeah, like, yeah. So that's really funny that he, even him being as characters in his own films become very influential as well and iconic. He became iconic and a famous director. Like during the trailers for his early films, like it was always Spike Lee came before the name because do the right thing was such a big hit and she's gonna have it was a really big hit um in cinema for being such a small budget it made a good amount of money and so he became uh synonymous like tarantino with the name coming before the movie for sure and so spike lee 
Shelton Jackson Spike Lee was born on March 20th, 1957 in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the son of Jacqueline Carroll, a teacher of the arts and black literature, and William James Edward Lee III, a jazz musician and composer when he was a child. The family moved from Atlanta to Brooklyn, New York, and his mother nicknamed him Spike during his childhood. He graduated from New York University's Tisch School of the Fine Arts, where he earned a Master's of Fine Arts in Film and Television. And in 1983, Spike Lee premiered his first independent short film titled Joe's Bed Stew Barbershop. We cut heads. Lee submitted the film as his master's degree thesis at the Tisch School of Arts. His classmate, Ang Lee, and Ernest R. Dickerson worked on the film as assistant director and cinematographer. Yes, That's that crazy. Ang Lee, respectively. The film was the first student film to be showcased in Lincoln Center, New Directors, New Films Festival. Lee's father, Bill Lee, composed the score. The film won a Student Academy Award. So he had early roots in filmmaking while he was growing up, through, going through school, and obviously had immense talent. And that's crazy that he was classmates with, with Ang Lee. That's wild. That's insane. Which is pretty I nuts. can't believe that. And also, like, you know, I think he's become a pop culture icon. You know, he's a gigantic fan of the Knicks. He's always wearing the colorful outfits and his glasses. And he's like the Jack Nicholson of the Lakers. Oh, for sure. He, he really represents, you know, that area of New York in popular culture. And I think a lot of people really love him. And going back to Marty Scorsese, so his mother actually took him to see Mean Streets when he was a kid, and it had a huge influence and impact on him, whatever year the, that was that movie came out. And then he first met Marty while he was at NYU. Martin had a screening for After Hours, and after the film screening, uh, Spike Lee went up to him and told him that story, and they became friends ever since. I love After Hours. Yeah, that's, a really, great, that's a great really comedy. Good movie. It's a great dark comedy. But yeah, New York Knicks, in, in terms of just – Trademarks I would love to dive into of Spike Lee. He's, he's got, got a bunch. So, he's yeah. got so many in the Knicks, Brooklyn, but sports in general are always a huge backdrop and character like trademark for for a lot of his films, whether it be in Do the Right Thing, where you know it's a very racial tension, high racial tension film, but it, he go he uses nuances of telling racial differences and stereotypes by doing stuff like talking about characters preference for athletes like who their favorite athletes are and how the black the black characters their favorite athletes are the black athletes and then the Italian Americans their favorite athletes are the white American white athletes and stuff like that yeah and also the production of his films they always have his uh, iconic shot I'm not sure what you exactly call it but it's the the shot he does in every single movie where the character is facing the camera um, and generally they're looking at the lens, but sometimes they aren't. So sometimes they break the fourth wall. And what happens is uh, it's kind of like a POV of the audience looking at the character. And the character is either supposed to be walking in the scene or even floating in the scene. And, the ca- and they ha- oh, it's called the double dolly shot. Double dolly. Okay, thank you. So he puts the camera and the actor on the same dolly. And they move uh, in synchronization with each other. And it looks as though even though the character is supposed to be maybe walking, it looks like they're just floating across the earth. And also, he's done it a few times where he makes it even more surrealist, like in Red Hook Summer, where he has the kids, um, instead of just them w- moving across the earth, he has them rise up into the air with the camera. So he, he adds, like, magic realism to that shot. But you see that image in every single one of his movies. during Usually during... Uh, Later in his films, usually during an incredibly conflicting and dramatic moment of the film, and then earlier in the films, early in his earlier films, it could be something like just two characters having a conversation. Yeah, or like the characters being pulled towards destiny. Sometimes it's a surreal moment. There's a bunch of great ones. I love the one in Inside Man with Denzel, then also Malcolm X is another great one. He does uh, two in Inside Man because he does the opening with Clive Owen. 
Well, yeah. is that is that's a okay? So I would you say that's a double? It's pushing. Yeah, yeah. So it's not moving in the same not, way. Yeah, it's going they're back. Moved, they're they're heading towards each other. Yeah. the camera and the and the subject. But it's the same idea. But in in terms of double dolly shot breaking the fourth wall, breaking the fourth wall in general is another trademark of Spike Lee in a lot of his phone in a lot of his films. Ton of great shots. Uh, I think there's a really great one in in Mo Better Blues where Denzel is practicing with the trumpet and then the he's breaking the fourth wall and it's like the 360 spinning shot around the entire yeah, apartment, the apartment yeah. so it's really great but that's another big trademark of him yeah ex- exactly and, and also you could say trademarks are denzel yeah it's a trademark well, he's really only he would see in four movies of his i believe five or six i think it's i think it's only four actually because the last one he was okay so it's five so it's yeah, five no it's mo better blues malcolm x he got game and inside man he hasn't been oh, in one since if anything, Lawrence John Fishburne and Totoro. Totoro. I would say Totoro's been in the most Spike Lee yeah, movies in general because he's in, yeah Totoro's in a ton of Spike Lee movies. But other frequent collaborators for more trademarks of of Spike Lee, John Carlo Esposito was in a lot of his early films. He was awesome to do the right thing for sure. And then he's also in a few others. Lawrence Fishburne, John Leguizamo was a ton of them. Delroy Lindo was in a lot of his movies. Ozzy Davis, Ruby D, Wesley Snipes also in several of his movies as well. So those are a lot of frequent actors that he has in his movies. Yeah, Wesley Snipes is great in Jungle Fever. Oh, for sure. He's, he's really good. Um, some more trademarks of Spike Lee. Obviously, racial and social justice themes. He does this in pretty much every single one of his films. And uh, one of the other great trademarks that ties into that is his wake-up call, which he does in, I think, every single one of his movies. He does a wake-up call by a character, either, either screaming wake-up wake or up. some sort of wake-up call. Um, to obviously signify uh, black Americans waking up to the struggle and everything that's happened to them over the last four centuries. And also a major trademark is rather than calling his movies films, he calls it a Spike Lee joint. Yeah, so, well, except for, isn't Old Boy like the only one I think that isn't a Spike Lee joint? I have to check. I think that one's a Spike Lee film, which is probably why it didn't, well, we'll talk about Old Boy later on and why that maybe was, why that probably bombed. But yeah, his films are are joints. That's what he calls them. So you're experiencing a Spike Lee joint. It's different than a film because it's his stamp. It's his kind of style. It's his unique way of telling stories. And he always he has the theme of race in every single one of his films depicted in various ways. Whereas, like you know, it's it's racial um, uh, divisions within Do the Right Thing. Whereas in Jungle Fever, it's you know race as opposed in terms of dating. And whereas Wesley Snipes and the girl he's seeing, he's black and she's white. And then the friends and everyone around them is reacting in in different negative ways because of them dating someone else from the other race. So he always injects that theme into his films and his stories in different ways. It's not always the same thing. And the thing I like about Jungle Fever tying back to Marty, because again, I think they're very similar filmmakers, is the, I feel like all the Italian female actresses in that movie yeah, are they're all, all from, in his movies. They're all from Martin Scorsese <laughs> movies. They're all from like Goodfellas <laughs> and Cape Fear. Yeah. <laughs> she's a white Italian. <laughs> yep, she's Italian. But his films also have strong female characters. And another trademark I love of Spike is... His high contrast, high vibrancy, high saturation. There are a lot of films like a lot of like Clockers and Inside Man when we're doing the flashbacks of like the the interrogation mm-hmm. rooms. It's like the the highs are glowing on characters. It's really beautiful and yeah. surreal. It kind of takes you out of 
out of body in a way. What with the bleach bypass? Yeah, these specific yeah. scenes you're seeing, but then also a ton of vibrancy, a ton of oversaturation, lots of like vibrant blues, lots of vibrant reds, yellows, and a lot of his films as well. Yeah, I, I would say maybe the only one he didn't really do that with was Inside Man is pretty desaturated, and also Miracle at Saint Anna is pretty desaturated. I think because of the tones he was going for with those films, but he, that that bleach bypass effect. It's you know they did that with Half Blood Prince. Did it with with uh, Saving Private Ryan? Why the highs glow like that? Because mm-hmm. they don't bleach the film. It's really beautiful. Yeah, parts of Malcolm X are obviously desaturated, but also parts are very vibrant and saturated. Like when mm-hmm. when he's red earlier on in the film, he's got like the red suit and everything and, and the straightened hair. So, but those are also very vibrant scenes compared to the prison sequences in that film as well. Yeah, but also t- going back to classical filmmaking, he loves loves using old filmmaking techniques, especially the, the Dutch angle is w- heavily used in his films, especially as his uh, the first half of his films. He was using the Dutch angle a ton especially like do the right thing has a ton over it yeah he got game has a bunch and he was always he's always been a big purveyor and fan of that image and also low shots which Mm. because his favorite movie of all time is the treasure of the sierra madre if you ever seen that or if you just look at images of it you see the influence of that film all over his movies he's got all these hyper close-ups these low angles these just tight wide shots on two or three characters in the frame at once it was very common in that film as well the cinematography style but i think that spike has used that as influence in a lot of his movies for sure aesthetically oh, he also has great female leads which is something that hasn't hadn't always been used by male filmmakers you know especially you know something you could say about scorsese he doesn't always have strong female lead characters for his films his films are are heavily um, portrayed with men and male actors, but Spike always has strong uh, women in his movies. And you could say that she's going to have it. His directorial debut for feature-length film theatrically was probably like a great uh, signifier of that, where the lead actress, the character of the film, is taking control of her sexuality and being in control of who she dates and who she sees rather than the men around her life telling her yeah. what she needs to do and how they how she needs to be with each one of them separately yeah. so all, yeah all three suitors are, are are trying to get her and she's just been she's the one in power and control of the situation she's like in charge of like who I'm going to let date me and if I'm even going to be a monogamous relationship or not yeah and other trademarks include great end credits and also really great opening credits i think that do the right thing has one of the most one of the most iconic opening sequences I've ever seen in a movie before. Where it has Rosie Perez dancing for like three three and a half mm. four minutes. Yeah, with all the red, which I think yeah. harkens back for Spike being such a huge fan of golden era Hollywood musicals and dance films. What's and, the song? Um, what's oh. it's Public Enemy? I can't remember. Uh, which Public Enemy is it? It's Something. Public Enemy though. It's one of their one of those tracks. Um, but it, it, that's what I think. It's his style of doing the golden era Hollywood that the Coen brothers do sometimes in their films recently with like Hail Caesar. That's like hit Spike's version of doing that. But yeah, but putting the black culture twist on it because he do, he's exactly. done Shakespearean adaptations, um, but with a hip hop culture theme and background, and in, in, it'll be like rival gangs rather than you know rival groups within a Shakespearean play. Exactly. So that's what I mean by. The, Harkening back to golden fifties yeah. Hollywood yeah. musicals and numbers, yeah, and like, stuff like that. Like Chirac is a Shakespeare adaptation, but it takes place with a, between gangs in Chicago. Well, speaking of Shakespeare adaptations, he's got a couple of projects he's working on right now. So his next project will be a movie musical about the origin story of Viagra, Pfizer's <laughs> erectile dysfunction drug. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> and this is part of the deal where he signed with Netflix to produce and direct multiple films, and then another one he's making is Prince of Cats, with his, which is an eighties hip hop retelling of Shakespeare's timeless classic Romeo and Juliet mm. and so it'll it'll have that violent Brooklyn underground sword dueling 
era backdrop onto this film as well with the hip hop style of the 80s. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That Viagra one sounds really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. He's also been trying to get a couple other movies made for his entire career. A Jackie Robinson film. Obviously, he's a huge, massive fan of Jackie Robinson. Mookie wears a, a Jackie Robinson jersey pretty much the entire film. Do the right, do the thing, right yeah. thing. And then he's also... He wrote a script with Bud Skullberg, one of his favorite filmmakers of all time, about Joe Lewis and Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling, the boxers. Unfortunately, Bud died before they got to make it. So he's he said it was a last promise he he would give to Bud before he passed away that he would get that movie made at some point in his career. And you know, uh, veteran filmmakers they they will have trouble getting like passion projects made. Like for example, Scorsese was trying to get Silence made for over twenty years, and then he 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 just dropped the project, but then. Because he got some hits thanks to Leo, uh, like, like Shutter Island and um, Wolf of Wall Street, he was able to make silence because he was becoming a draw at the box office again. Because like Spike Lee, Scorsese was never a big box office hit. His movies um, never made a ton of money, as respected as they are. They weren't like box office juggernauts. And same thing with Spike. He's only had a few very successful films. Uh, Inside Man is by far his most successful film made over $250 million at the box office. Whereas his, many of his other films, um, they perform uh, just moderately well. And some, t- and many of them are box office failures. So it is, it can be a struggle for these great veteran filmmakers to make passion projects because they can't get the funding because their track record, even though they make great films, they aren't highly successful. So uh, I think a lot of investors... In studios, even though they might love filmmakers like these two, they'll still be hesitant to greenlight a project that they aren't sure will make any money. Hundred percent. May I correct you? Sure. Inside Man was about one hundred eighty-five million. So that no, was worldwide two fifty. No, that's that's global. Okay. Yeah. So I just I just go. Oh, I'm adjusting for inflation. Oh, is what I looked. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. adjusted for inflation. Yeah. And then you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I mean, if it wasn't yeah, Wolf of Wall Street was Marty's first movie that surpassed three hundred million at the box office. Yeah, because Shutter Island was just below three hundred. Like, but, but Shutter Island was his most successful movie at the time. And that's why Wolf. I think that and the Irishman probably would have never been made by Scorsese if he didn't do it with Netflix. If ne- you think yeah. about it. And so that was that's the another F- one he was trying to get made for over 20 so years. I bet yeah. you if even Netflix wouldn't have done that if it was just a theatrical release because it was same day dig- Netflix and theatrical yeah. release for the Irishman. And I think that's also why Spike Lee did this deal with Netflix. I'm sure maybe we'll get the Joel Lewis movie, which would be really cool down the line from Netflix. Yeah, because Scorsese wanted to make the Irishman when Joe Pesci and De Niro and them were still yeah, not young. super, super old looking. <laughs> yeah. That was his initial plan, but he could never get the money he's, for it. It's like they aged by 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in real life. <laughs> Whereas Netflix is like, as as much as as much garbage content as they put out there, <laughs> they are giving a lot of great filmmakers all the money they need to make their projects, which is why Scorsese has gone to Netflix, which is why Fincher has gone to Netflix, which is why Spike Lee has gone to Netflix, because Netflix is just like, here's this barrel of cash. Do what you want to do, because we want as many great films on our platform as possible. We'll own the movie outright. We never have to try and license the movie. We'll just own it forever. And so it just makes sense for Netflix to give these great filmmakers a lot of money to do their own passion projects. It's pretty smart. You know, Netflix, they they needed to adapt after everyone started getting on the streaming game. And by giving these great directors who 
are such incredible storytellers, budgets to tell the stories that no other studio pre-streaming would have get, given them funding for, it's kind of, it's really great. It's, it's genius, and we're going to get a ton of great films from all these guys coming and women coming down the line. Now, Spike is a man and a director with a lot of credits. He's got 128 directing credits, and again, this includes films, short films, uh, documentaries, music videos, even video games with NBA 2K16. So before we dive into his filmography, we'll, we'll mostly just cover his what we like his best movies. We'll dabble in most of them, but we'll, we'll spend more significant amount of time on on the best ones. But before we get into his filmography, how about we head on into our intermission and have a little bit of fun? Sounds like a plan. Let's start with a movie quote competition. This one's for me. You know what you get for shooting an officer, Jake? The gas chamber. You know what the gas chamber smells like? Pine oil. That's where you're headed. Pine oil heaven. Oh, what is this? Can you say it again? I gotta, I gotta pretend like there's a cigarette in my mouth. You know what you get for shooting an officer, Jake? The gas chamber. You know what the gas chamber smells Denzel. like? Denzel. Pine oil. That's where you're heading. A pine oil heaven. Training day. Yeah. <laughs> <That> <laughs> it sounded good, better with the... That was a good impression. Six, that helped. Six, it, six, yeah. It really <laughs> helped. I have a fan quote from Will Middleton. It's a good one. All right. There's only two things I hate in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. <laughs> That's a really funny quote. What is this from? Oh, man. There's only two things I hate in this world. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do the accent. <laughs> what is it? It's Michael Caine as Austin Powers' his dad. And oh, Austin my Powers God. Story. I haven't seen those in so long. <laughs> That's such a he's, good line. He's perfectly cast as a, as his dad. That is a good perfectly line. Cast. Well, because I mean, he played that character yeah. multiple times. I mean, the he played the character that Austin spoofs. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. Like the original Italian job is like Austin Powers and Alfie. Because like, yeah. Michael Caine's character in the Italian job, he sleeps with like thirty women in the first half hour of that movie. <laughs> like every woman he meets, he sleeps with. It's crazy. I've ne- I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I was like, well, this is a little much, guys. <laughs> the sixties, man. <laughs> Michael Caine was a stud, Abs- absolute stud. <laughs> like, like a girl just like talks to him. And he's like, "All right, let's go back to my bedroom. <laughs> like, relax." Like, I'm Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> too much, too much. Love that guy. All right, he's retired. Do you have a quote? Or is that just from you? That's fa- just from Will. Thanks yeah. for submitting that, Will. Now, guess this movie movie release year, Rounders. I'm gonna go with. 1998. Nice. Yes. Got it. Appreciate it. Nailed I it. almost said 2000. Almost. Good thing you didn't. Oh, it would have been bad. You probably almost said like 1999, but I didn't. But you did. I did not. Okay, guess this I year. Did not. I did, did not, not hit her. I did not hit her. I did not. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> Twister. Love this movie. 1996. Correct. Let's go. Nice job. Let's I, go. High five in the air. Right. Two for two. All right, movie pop quiz time. Let's go. Let's How go. many Coen Brothers movies is John Turturro in? Oh, my God, you asshole. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Oh. Language. <laughs> Make a guess. <laughs> oh, let me think. Barton Fink, oh, brother, where art thou? Um, Big Lebowski. Um, I'm forgetting a bunch, I'm sure. I'm going to go with... <sighs> Six. Four. Damn it. It's just Miller's Crossing in 1990. Oh. But you got the other three. Yeah. He seems like he's in more. It seems like it. Seems but I mean, because like I think Barton Fink. It's because he plays so many small roles in so many movies. Yeah. 
he in is. so many movies. It's, it's, I feel like it's not until recently that he's been getting like, well, besides Barton Fink, he's the lead in that, obviously, but he's been getting like big movies. Like He's in the Batman. Like That's cool as hell. He's never been a lead, though. Barton Fink is the lead. Well, just one movie. Yeah, that's what I yeah. mean. Yeah, but the, he, I think he got nominated for an Oscar for that. I don't know. Pretty sure he did. I don't know. Maybe. Um, all right. You're, you're a quiz time. I did another um, actor in movies question. Oh, yeah? That's... So how many PTA movies has Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman been Hoffman. in? <laughs> Hoffman. How many has he been in? Let me think. It's a bit easier to guess. Boogie Nights. The cookie man, uh, boogie nights. What else? Uh, the master. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Punch Drunk Love. Hmm. He's not in Magnolia. Three. That's your answer? No. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's your, yeah. no, that's your answer. <laughs> Let me think. No, that's your answer. The look in your face was like, what an idiot. Yeah, you, you know you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. You're wrong. Hard eight. He plays the craps guy. Yeah. And then he's in Magnolia. He's the he's the nurse. Oh, my God. He's, he's the nurse who calls Tom Cruise's character to see his father on his deathbed. God damn it. Nice try. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's All right. three hours long. What we got for... um. Haters, unsubscribes. Who we got? We don't have. I didn't see any real haters this week. Um, it was pretty clean this week. Although, didn't you get in an argument with someone, or was that last week? Did I get? <laughs> you, you, always, you always get. Into, you always find the haters. Why? Well, <laughs> okay, okay. So, this is. It told you. I told you. <laughs> on a Shuttered Island clip um, on TikTok, Anthony posted a clip talking about where he ran through a bunch of the sport, bunch of the clues. About the truth behind Teddy's character and the truth about the film. I won't spoil the movie. It's a good clip. Um, and so this person commented, I watched five minutes of this movie. They arrived. I said, actually, hold on. This is going to spoil it. So he said the twist. So, okay. So he goes, I watched five minutes of this movie. They arrived. I said to myself, he said the twist to himself. And then I turned it off. So I wrote, wow, you're so cool. So just because you you figure out the twist, which you, which you probably didn't, you shut the movie off. It's what is this a competition between you and the filmmakers? Like ah, I figured it out. No, I'm not gonna watch this amazing movie at all. I also suspect that that person already knew subconsciously the twist because it's been it's an old movie and the movie is famous for it. And I feel like they were just like ignorant, like they didn't know the tw- they didn't think they knew the twist, but they did. Yeah, true. And also, That's what I, I think. think when sometimes if you haven't seen a movie and you've heard like by from so many people like, oh, there's a crazy twist, you're just on the lookout for the crazy twist and, yeah. you're, and you kind of can guess it. But like when I watched that movie for the first time, I went in blind with, without knowing there was a twist. Yeah, if you watch that movie in theaters when it came out, and you, you don't never, know there's never you heard, heard anything about it. You don't know that there's a yeah, twist. All you saw was the trailer. There's no friggin' way you would ever guess the twist. That's not possible. It's unless not going to happen. you're genius. I mean, yeah, unless you're you're me, because because of the clues. <laughs> oh yeah, well you just said there's no way anyone could have done it. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I still don't think a genius would figure it out. <laughs> I think someone pretty clever, maybe. It's enough for a clever man. <laughs> I just think that person's full of s. Does anyone know that quote? Say it again. It's enough for a clever man. I don't know. V for vendetta. Nice yeah. ego weaving. Yeah. All right, uh, so we have a couple of great five-star reviews. The first one's from River Street. Awesome podcast. That's the review. Five stars. Thanks Thank so much. <laughs> and then God 
one five three six eight. God, I didn't know you were tuning in. <laughs> Thank you, God. Golden Girls. Hey, boys, just want to let you know that the Elvis impersonator bit on the Tarantino Reservoir Dogs episode was actually on an episode of the Golden Girls. Oh, that's where it. Quentin dressed up as Elvis with a bunch of Elvis impersonators. B. Arthur would be so disappointed in y'all. Sorry, pal. Thanks for the uh, the uh, the correction. The correction, God. I think I said it, it was some other talk show. I can't remember. I think you said it like yeah, a talk show. Yeah, not Golden Girls. Well, now we know. Yeah. On this day in film history, today is February 7th. In 1914, Charlie Chaplin debuts silent film character The Tramp in Kid Auto Races at Venice. In 1940, Walt Disney's second feature-length film, Pinocchio, premieres in New York City. And we're going to get two Pinocchio films this year. In 1974, Mel Brooks' film Blazing Saddles open, opens in movie theaters starring Cleveland Little and Gene Wilder. Hilarious movie. And happy birthday to Chris Rock and Ashton Kutcher. Dude, where's my car? Two icons. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chris Rock is an icon. My streaming recommendation is The Great Debaters. Denzel Washington's directorial debut tells the true story of poet and professor Melvin B. Tolson, who taught at the predominantly black Wiley College in 1935, Texas, who decided to start a debate team somewhat unheard of at a black college. It is a really terrific movie. Yeah, he did a good job with it. My streaming recommendation is The Squid and the Whale, a great family drama by Noah Baumbach. This movie put him on the map and it's available on Amazon Prime. What's the other Pinocchio movie that's coming out? So there's the Guillermo del Toro one, yeah. the, the stop motion, and then Disney's making a live action one. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that's the one with Tom Hanks as Geppetto. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is playing Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> like, the cast is pretty crazy. That's funny. PTA was trying to get one made for a while. I would love to see a PTA yeah, Pinocchio he was, movie. Yeah, he was in the uh, development of a Pinocchio movie with Disney, but... Um, I'm sure Disney had requirements for the script. Robert Downey Jr. was trying yeah. to get one made too for a long time. It was, was going to be the Gepetto. Gepetto. It was going to it was going to be Downey. Yeah, Downey and Geppetto. Yeah. So yeah, that was the one he was trying to get made for a long time yeah, too. Yeah, but I, I think maybe Disney might have been like we maybe overseen too much because PTA does his own thing like by far. Yeah, to see him do like an, an a studio old film. established story a property, a yeah, yeah a piece of property of fiction literature that'd be. Hmm. I don't know if studios would like it. <laughs> yeah, because he, I mean, he's not someone who would ever want, he's very stubborn as a filmmaker. He doesn't want anyone to control him at all. It's kind of like what Aronofsky did with Noah, where he basically had creative control over that. And you can tell it's not what the studio wanted, but I still thought that was a really great movie. And he kept his creative control over it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what happens when you have a movie that is the one of the most profitable movies ever made with Black Swan. Then you can do anything you want. Pretty much. So, but PTA has never had that. So when you get if you, if you make like Roland Emmerich Independence Day, it's almost two billion dollars adjusted for inflation. We just found out. So if you make a, <laughs> if you make a movie that is gigantic and a huge, huge, huge success, that gives you freedom with studios to do whatever you want next. And that's why Aronofsky was able to make such a big movie with Noah. Because remember, everyone listening, movies people don't make movies for fun. Studios don't make them just because they like making movies. They it's like they make them because they like making money. It's a business. A lot of money. They like making movies, but they also like making two billion dollars on a fifty million dollar yeah, production. You know, I mean they got a, they got a lot of employees to pay. It's a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people work for studios. It's a business. Yeah. Now it's twenty twenty two and Valentine's Day is what, a week away? Today's wow, the seventh. So listen, get on manscaped.com. If you got a manual life, this is the perfect gift for them. Getting something from Manscaped, especially Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your entire order today. Manscaped also just launched their Ultra Premium Collection, which is the ultimate wet goods bundle, which would be perfect for the man your life who could probably get a little sprucing up in his life in terms of smelling a little better because this comes with deodorant, actual armpit deodorant from Manscaped, body wash, 
two-in-one shampoo conditioner, hydrating body spray, and the package also comes with a free set of Manscaped lip balm. We've been using this package for the last couple of weeks, and I'm telling you, it is fantastic. So head on over to manscaped.com just in time for Valentine's Day. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Do you love movie posters? If you do, there's no better place to get your posters online than at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters. They have a gigantic selection of every film and TV show imaginable in their arsenal, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com can handle it. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. If you're looking at our set online on YouTube, you will see that it is covered with these amazing posters high quality stuff we love them whatever we want we just hit them up and they're like they send them the posters to us right away they also collaborate with us in our movie poster giveaway contest uh we just did one with our reservoir dogs episode don't forget to head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code raiders 10 to get 10 percent off your order today so let's get back into spike lee's movies and we'll go through his filmography but first his I want to note that his production company called 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks, you'll see this in pretty much all of his movies, is the production company of Spike Lee. Founded in 1979, the company name is a reference to the phrase most often used to refer to the early Reconstruction period policy and episode of events in which certain recently emancipated black families in the Georgia coast were given lots of land no larger than 40 acres and in some cases surplus armies surplus army mules the order issued in 1865 by general sherman as special field order 15 was later revoked by andrew johnson and the land was taken away from the freed slaves and returned to the previous owners so that's why that was that is the name of spike's production company how about we dive now into the majority of spike's filmography and his narrative films his narrative yeah. films and we'll, we'll, i also want to talk about four little girls who came out in 1997 a documentary but mm -hmm. let's start with which one do you think she's gonna have it yeah she's gonna have it this is breakout you his know this, this movie was made with just like a couple hundred thousand dollars maybe one hundred thousand dollars i think it was one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, and it grossed seven million at the box office yeah and if you just that if you just that for inflation that's like 20 25 million nowadays so that's, that's, a, that's a really good return on investment it's huge and it was it's a great film into, about this woman who's you know She's got three suitors, um, and she's trying to figure out which one to pick. And also, she's also trying to be like, should I be dating a bunch of guys? Should I date one guy? Should I be monogamous? Should I be in control of my body? Um, and it's she often breaks the fourth wall. It's got really creative uh, filmmaking, really creative cinematography, a lot of great um, uses of lighting and playing with the lighting. Uh, and he showed his mark for creativity with this film. Yeah, this woman is taking control of her life, her sexual identity, her body, her choice, that's basically the theme of the film and, the, and the, the, the the story arc for the character being courted by these three different men who, again, are constantly telling her why she needs to be, why, why she needs to choose him, why you need me in your life, I'm everything you need, I'm the perfect guy for you, and she's the one that's really in control, when, that, that she's in charge of her life. Yeah, exactly. It's got a great ending, and I really love the the breaking of the fourth wall in this because it's something he'll end up doing in almost all of his films. And the idea of the film originated from Spike having conversations with him and his friends about women, and she's gonna have it. Was recently adapted into a television series for Netflix. Oh, cool! So I think must it's, have been part of his deal. I think it's in like 
No, it's like season three, I think, of it. Uh-huh. So it came out, I think, 2019. There's so many shows on Netflix. It's hard, <laughs> it's to, hard, hard to even keep track. Whenever people, I love when people love, send, I love when they send us like things to watch and like, hey, you guys should check this out. But it's it's impossible to keep up. There's, There's so, so much TV out there. And like, I've just started watching Dark on Netflix. I like, I have one time for one show at a time. Uh-huh. And I watched season, episode six of Boba Fett just because it's pretty hyped. <laughs> But like other than that, we don't have time to watch all these TV shows. It's too much. I love how you skip five episodes of Boba Fett. I'm telling you, the, 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 it's ironic. The two best episodes of the Boba Fett show are where Boba Fett's hardly in the, the Mando. I show. think he has two minutes of screen time in, in episodes five and six. That's that's pretty funny. Because episode five also yeah. I checked out. That's basically the book of Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't even watch that many TV shows. Just Succession right now. And there's a lot. That's the problem. I just can't do it. I can't binge a show. And when there's multiple seasons. But anyways, let's get back into Spike Lee's yeah. filmography. And so next up, he has School Days, which came out right after that, which is about a historically, historically black college and the um, sororities and fraternities within that college. Uh, also, he throws in a lot of protests and un- unrest about uh, apartheid in Africa and the students' reactions to that. So a lot of great thematic elements thrown into the story. Yeah, it's Spike's yeah. version, you could say, kind of, of Animal House in a way, but obviously more dramatic and serious with the, the It's got great hazing scenes. But yeah, the hazing yeah. sequences and stuff like that are really funny and iconic, I think, and really great musical numbers as well. Yeah, and um, and he play, uh, Spike Lee plays uh, the lead of this movie. He's like the, the center of the film, mm-hmm. the story. And then in Do the Right Thing, which came out in 1989, Spike dropped, you could argue, his best movie in his career. Like, it's up there, top two or three for sure. Number one, maybe. And, you know, not only was it one of the best films of 1989, it's one of the best films of that decade for sure. Uh, both Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert ranked them as ranked as the best film of 1989 and later in their top 10 films of the decade. Number six for Siskel, number four for Ebert. Ebert later added to his film list of great movies, which is an awesome list. You should check it out. And it recalls the time in New York City where race relations were at fever pitch, particularly between African-Americans and Italian-Americans. It's centered around this pizzeria, Sal's Pizzeria, where Spike's character Mookie works and just the neighborhood where – so it's just this Italian pizzeria in this black neighborhood in Brooklyn. And it shows the, the racial unrest that kind of is at a boiling point in the hottest day of the year. Yeah, and it has so much creativity, so much color to it, the filmmaking, the Dutch angles, the the great camera work. And but what really works is the characters and the approach to the film because it, the film lead the story leads to a, a giant riot in the destruction of the pizza shop, and it's caused by racial tension, and it, it's it, the entire story it starts from just like little things you know just from you know Mookie pointing out in that in this Italian pizzeria which is in the Bed Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn which is predominantly black people that this Italian shop has no black p- famous people on their wall of fame. Oh, sorry, it's, it's not Mookie. It's John Carl Esposito's character bugging out. Thank that, you. That sorry. Makes that, and then Mookie works. Mookie the works there, yeah. And because this this wall of fame has no black people, even though they're in a black neighborhood, they think it's unfair and, and disrespectful to their customers and the people that actually patronage this pizza shop that they there are no black people represented on their wall of fame. And so and it starts with these little things that evolve into this gigantic conflict. And what I really like love about the approach is that um, the racism is seen from both sides. You know, the the black people are racist towards the Italians and the Italians are racist towards the black people. It's not just one side. 
side against the other. It's it's the racial divide from both perspectives. And not even that. It's black people are racist to the Koreans. The Koreans are racist yeah. to the Koreans. The and to Hispanics, the Jews. Yeah. So the, they're all racist towards each other. And that's why, like, I think the message of the film is we need to stop being racist of all cultures to each other and just yeah. kind of we all have to live together in this neighborhood. Yeah. The approach is he's saying he's not pointing fingers at one group. He's pointing fingers at everybody. And he's saying the problem is none of us want to get along and everyone wants to single out everyone else and we're all enemies. And I really like, I think that's such a great, smart and nuanced approach to the idea of the entire film. In the movie, it's so entertaining. It's got so much energy, so much life. It's really funny. It's it's honestly surprisingly funny. Um, and I, I just really love the character so much. And it's... It's crazy because if if this movie, you could say if like this movie and Malcolm X came out like in the last 10 years, they would have cleaned up at the Oscars and stuff like that. But, you know, we were living in a different climate back then. And yeah, Do the Right Thing only got nominated for screenplay. Yeah, it did. Right. It, it got. Yeah, that's it. It got nominated for. Yeah. It, 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 no, Best Original Screenplay, which was his first nomination. Then Best Supporting Actor by Danny Aiello, who plays Sal in the film, the uh-huh. pizzeria owner, the father of the two Italians, one played by John Tuttero. Um, It was not nom- nominated for Best Picture or Best Director at the Academy Awards. And at the Academy Awards ceremony, Kim Bassinger, who was a presenter that evening, stated that Do the Right Thing also deserved a Best Picture nomination. Oh, she said it on stage? Yeah, on stage. Oh, wow. And so... The crazy thing about this, and it's it's interesting how it sort of repeated itself recently, where the Best Picture winner of that year was Driving Miss Daisy, the Morgan Freeman film, where he plays a character, a black driver for an upper-class white woman, and it focused on the race relations of that elderly Jewish woman being driven by Morgan Freeman's character. And so he lost to that. He didn't even get nominated. And then, as you remember recently, Green Book in 2018 won Best Picture over Black Klansman, which was nominated that year, Spike Lee's movie, and I would in both those situations you can see in the in the recent one with Green Book when you could see Spike Lee was visibly upset when he saw the announcement because well he said in his speech too yeah in his, his, in his when winning, he won best yeah. best uh, adapted screenplay he was like every time someone drives somebody I lose yeah but yeah. it's it's more than that the fact we actually talked about it before early like in an early episode of the show where Green Book won. Green Book winning over Black Klansman hurt Spike Lee so much because Black Klansman's a black film. And even though people might think that Green Book is a is a black movie in a way because it tells this this, you know, very heartwarming emotional story about a black man and a white man coming together and accepting each other, it's a white production, it's a white movie by white filmmakers. That's why it hurt Spike Lee so much. Even though, you know, Octavia Spencer was a producer on Green Book. Um, but she, the the entire filmmaking production, it was predominantly white. Like the, Peter Farley was the director. Yes, but I mean that's the same thing with Driving yeah. Miss Daisy, where it's a race related movie yeah. with white filmmakers. Same thing with Green Book, race related movie with mostly white filmmakers. Whereas his movies were race related movies by a black filmmaker. Yeah, a hundred percent. But I do dis, I disagree that I think that Roma was the best movie that year, and Alfonso Cuarón who won director, he should have won Best Picture as well. Oh, I think Roma yeah. was the best movie too, but yeah. I just think that that's what Spike Lee was feeling yeah. in both those situations. It's interesting and pretty sad that it kind of repeated itself Yeah, and but 30 he, years later. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty strange how that worked out timing-wise with a movie, each movie has someone driving another character around. But he did win Best Screenplay, which he definitely deserved. I think Black Klansman, it could be, one, it could be his best film. I need to watch it a couple more times, but it really is... 
an excellent, excellent movie. It is. I would say, like, for me, his best films are Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, um, Black Klansman. Also, The Five Bloods is awesome. That's a really good movie. I, I think you got to throw in 25th Hour and Inside Man as well. Oh, yeah, true. I think those are really great, great movies. I think Inside Man is a terrific thriller. Um, I, I think it's in his top five as well. And we'll get to it in a little bit. Yeah. But when asked by journalists from BBC if Best Picture winner Green Book offended him, Spike Lee re- replied, let me give you a British answer. It's not my cup of tea. that's funny All right, let's move on to Jungle Fever which came out in 1991 this deals with like Anthony was talking about earlier interracial relationships infidelity infidelity. this also is Halle Berry's first film role she was in a couple TV series but she actually plays a crack addict along with Samuel L. Jackson this movie stars Wesley Snipes in the lead role yeah Wesley is really terrific in this film and it's about a man who he's in a relationship but then he begins an affair with a white woman and it's a, it, the film is about the reactions of the people in their lives when they react to first him, his friends, how they react to him dating a white girl, and then the the woman, her, her friends reacting to her dating a black guy and things like, you know, one of her friends says, you, if your dad finds out, he's, he's going to kill him. And, and then um, Wesley Snipes' friends, uh, one of them played by, by Spike, he's like, he thinks he's... It's funny because Wesley Snipes says, he tells his friend that I'm cheating on my girlfriend and then Spike is like, oh, I thought you had some big news to say. And then he goes, she's white. And he's like, whoa, that's an H-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's, it's the, his depiction of race in this film, it, one of the main themes is skin color, not just white and black, but also, you know, a black person who's light-skinned because Wesley Snipes' current girlfriend is light-skinned. And, and there's, a, there's a conflict between, you know, that idea of racism and then also... The, the, the idea of Jungle Fever is that Wesley Snipes, Spike is saying in the film, Wesley Snipes thinks he's in love with this woman, but it's really the fact that she's the opposite race that is what he's infatuated with. And and Spike Lee, that's the entire theme of the movie. Really great movie. Yeah. Very funny moments. But and also before that, he came out with Mo Better Blues, which was his oh, first, Den- that? I'm sorry. Yeah, first Denzel collaboration oh, where really Denzel plays a jazz musician. Really terrific. Film. Looking right at my notes. Yeah. Just right, right by me. <laughs> 1990, Mo Better Blues, which is awesome. Yeah. It's a really good movie. And it, it, again, similar to Martin Scorsese careers, they both made jazz movies where with Denzel with Mo Better Blues. And then Marty, New York, New York with Robert De Niro playing a sex player. Mm-hmm. Very similar. Uh, Mo Better Blues, this is an awesome, awesome Denzel performance. He just commands the screen so much. This is after he won his Oscar from Glory. What was it, 1989 or 1989? The year before. And man, this guy just commands the screen like no one else. And he's so charming. Very really cool. interesting, suave yeah. as hell in this movie. Spike Lee plays a character who's the manager of the jazz club, but no one wants him to manage it anymore. And so they want uh, Denzel's character, the trumpet player, to become the new manager of the jazz club. And it's just about a power dynamics inside the jazz club between all these people and, and musicians. Yeah, terrific filmmaking, really creative, like that POV 360 shot. Just amazing filmmaking. He did a terrific job. All right, next John, up, yeah. next up, we have a big one. It's Malcolm X, uh, which was actually produced by Warner Brothers, and uh, this stars Denzel as the title character. Spike also co-stars in the film, and it's uh, it could be his best movie. It's really epic. It's over three hours long, and it shows uh, Malcolm X's journey from his his humble beginnings to becoming such an influential figure in the world. Uh, I, I think it's really a, a perfect film. Uh, one of Denzel's best performances. It should have. It should have. Um, he should have won best best actor. Denzel should have another Oscar, and also Spike should have been nominated for um, 
multiple things, including Best Picture. It's just a really amazing film. Yeah, it got two nominations. That's yeah. it. It, won, it got nominated for Denzel for acting and yeah. costume design. And again, if this movie came out today, it'd get 11 nominations. You know, it'd Oh, definitely. Up. It'd be like Return of the King. It'd win like eight <laughs> awards. It'd be insane. It, it is an epic in every sense of the word. It's an incredible incredible performance from Denzel and it's a genre mashup in a way when you tell the the story of someone so influential someone so interesting and someone who went so much real through so much real transformation as Malcolm X and you learn so much about him in this film you know the the character goes through so much and Spike Lee does an incredible job telling those different stages of his life from before he's in prison when he's you know he's in this culture of of these black Americans who who think they have to try to you know become white in a way, which is so tragic. Especially the scenes where he's he's getting his hair straightened by Spike Lee. He's always straightening his hair and how much it burns. And he, his hair straight. He's like, look at me. Do I look white? It's like it's really sad and tragic. And then he finds his identity while he's in prison from his mentor and finds the culture in, in the religion of Islam and the nation of Islam, and then becomes Malcolm X later on in the film. And it's it's an incredible incredible journey. Amazing film. It's also, I think, one of the best prison movies of all time. There's a lot of time it's spent yeah, in prison. It's really terrific. It's, I, I was unaware of his journey in prison and how much how much that time changed him and, and how he became he it revolutionized him as a being. Yeah, and Denzel Denzel was perfect because he had already acted in the play of this that was based mm. on this book too. So he was so Denzel was already ready to play this character. He's like, I already had the glasses. I was just like, when are we filming? Let's go. And a smart move by him, and also very respectable, is he was asked to play. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. as well uh, after this, but he he declined and, and refused. He said because he said he shouldn't be he shouldn't be playing t- these two icons of black culture. It wouldn't be fair for one person to play them. Uh, it's, but he was asked multiple times to play uh, Dr. King. Next up, we have a couple of small movies: uh, Crooklyn, uh, which is a, a great little family comedy drama in Brooklyn. Coming of age. Uh, coming of age. Yeah, it's, it's about kids in Bed Stuy. And and what that culture was like, not for adults, but for young children. And I think it was a really funny, touching, it's a heartwarming film, uh, ultimately about great themes like family and love and peace. Um, but it, it's very funny. It's very graphic, like the way the kids talk to their parents. It's like I would never talk to them. I would never talk back. To, I never once talked back to my parents in my entire life. Dad would have thrown you down the stairs. Yeah, but, just kidding, kidding. <laughs> but it's, it's funny. The kids are very cute and very charming. And then Clockers, which came out in 1995. Now, Clockers is is a really good watch, and I love it because it's a blend of Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee. He produced it. Yes, Scorsese produced this film, and Spike Lee co-wrote and directed it. And you can really see it's a mashup kind of of their styles in a lot of the way. Like you get a lot of like Scorsese characters, like Harvey especially Keitel. Harvey Keitel yeah. as this detective. It's like that is a Scorsese character, hundred percent. And then you get John Turturro as yeah. another detective. So it's just yeah. a great blend of these of these styles of filmmaking and storytelling. And it's you can tell you know they're great friends and they have great styles and and just to, to it's a mashup. It's so fun and to get both of their styles in one film and also culturally culturally relevant because it's a, it's about Kaitel and, and Satoru played uh, uh, detectives investigating a murder, and uh, their prime suspect is a black man who was th- at the scene, but he didn't commit the, the killing. But he's being accused, and he's the prime suspect. And um, it's about you know uh, how police treat black people in that neighborhood, and how you know this man he's being wrongfully uh, persecuted for this with no evidence um, uh, to to prove that he was even the culprit, only that he was there. And it's, it's a really terrific film. Um, Kaitel is really fin- fantastic in this movie. 
And then it also introduced us to Mackay Pfeiffer. Oh, yeah. Remember, yeah. is future in 8 Mile. Be rabbits, bud. Be rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> There's no movie. There's you're no right, Mackay Pfeiffer. Right. Yeah. Oh, my it's God. It's because he's got a buzzed yeah, head in this movie. Yeah, he's yeah. got no hair in it's this Mackay, one. It's Mackay Pfeiffer. You're right, as opposed to the dreads. Yeah. I, I love the Anthony Anderson and Kevin Hart in Scary Movie 3. Let's <laughs> <laughs> move <spoof> of that. <laughs> Anthony Anderson's like in love with him. He's like, I love you, man. I fucking love you. <laughs> that movie's just ridiculously funny. It's a funny. great spoof. <laughs> All right, let's move on to... How about we get out of narrative features and talk about Four Little Girls, which came out in 1997. Let's do it. Horribly tragic story. This film recounts the people and events leading up to one of the most despicable hate crimes during the height of the civil rights movement, the bombing of the 16th church in Birmingham, Alabama. In that attack, four little African-American girls lost their lives, and a nation was simultaneously revolted, angered, and galvanized to push the light, push the fight for equality and justice on it is a heartbreaking story. It's a really tragic and emotional documentary. Again, Spike's made several documentaries, but this is probably his most powerful. Yeah, it's extremely emotional, extremely resonant story, you know, still relevant around the world today. And I think everyone should definitely give this a watch. A lot of these documentaries, they've been getting a lot more notoriety these days. Um, uh, but I think they're important stories to be told for sure in the, in, in the culture of America. Next up, 1998, we got He Got Game. Now, this is the next Denzel collaboration with Spike Lee. And He Got Game stars Denzel as a father of an NBA prospect who's going to pick a college school to play for, starring the real-life Ray Allen, who brought a championship to the Boston Celtics in the Big Three. 2007, or was it 2006? 2008. 2008? Yeah. The, the big three. The big three. Was that 2008? I thought it was 2007. So. It could have been. Hold on, let me check. But Ray Allen, um, he's considered one of the greatest shooters of all time, especially three-point shooters. Like, he was the three-point guy before um, Steph Curry came onto the scene. 2008, you're 2008, right. 2008, thank you. I'm a real stealthy fan. He just fan. passed him in uh, three-pointers yeah. this past season. Yeah, he did it much uh, much faster than he did. <laughs> the game's yeah. changed so much. But Ray Allen, he's, he's, he's made some of the most, like, clutch three-pointers in NBA history. Like, he, we won the championship because of him. But Spike wanted to cast an athlete for this film, and I think he, he auditioned, like, every basketball player he could find. And Ray Allen, he's not an actor, but he actually does a, pr- a pretty good job in this movie. Obviously, it's noticeable when he's in scenes with Denzel, one of the greatest actors of all time, but I think he still definitely holds his own. I, Spike Lee purposely wrote him as being a quiet, um, modest guy. Whereas, like his his dad is a motor mouth, so I think that that was a smart way to approach the film. If you're going to hire an act uh, a, a non actor for a role, have give them as little dialogue as possible. Yeah, and Denzel plays the father who's very controlling and power empowering over his son, pushed him very hard his entire life, is in prison, but can get out early if he can convince his son to accept scholarship to play at the specific school. Uh, was it the a, governor, the governor yeah. of of the, of yeah, the state deal. Yeah. to make a deal to get out early, and it's really great back and forth father son dynamic and really really good movie. It really it's a really cool look behind the curtain of um the life of like a college star at college and like you know how getting the, recruited that, yeah and but also like how the superstars of like a sports team are like the celebrities of a college like when he campus. goes to check out the school and yeah. like what i won't tell you what happens but it's pretty yeah, crazy in the parties like it's, it's pretty wild to see like and i'm sure it was pretty accurate to like what life was like for like these famous college athletes like they're the stars of the campus and it's pretty interesting and also 
Just like uh, a young man juggling such big things like the NBA and his future. And, you know, he knows these teams are looking for him as, as possible drafting prospects. And also, but also having this difficult conflict with his father, who was a terrible father, um, also caused the death of his mother. So there's a huge amount of animosity between the son and the father uh, because of the, that's why the father is in prison because he caused his wife's death uh, by accident, but it was his fault. And so it's a really d- difficult relationship. Um, and I think that Spike, he he makes a great film. It's very ambiguous at the end and metaphorical. It's not a happy movie, and I think that's the way to approach it. Next up, Summer of Sam, 1999. This is about the son of Sam, the serial killers that happened in, was it Brooklyn? In yeah, it was 1997. Brooklyn. It, was like, it was like the Zodiac for San Francisco. This uh, some, son of Sam was for Brooklyn. David Berkovich. So th- if, you, if you've seen Mindhunter, that, car- that person, that serial killer is betrayed portrayed in that show as well the son of sam serial killer it's about the inhabitants kind of turning on each other suspecting each other obviously the racial tensions involved as well in the neighborhoods of the of brooklyn and i i love the portrayal of uh, italian americans in this movie it's it's really funny and then adrian brody is one of his early movies and he plays uh, a heavy metal punk rock singer he's got this crazy spiky hair and the british flag t-shirt yeah but it was one of his earliest roles but like John Turturro is, I think, a highlight of this movie for sure. Yeah, and John Leguizamo and Imperioli is in it as well. Imperioli, yeah, Imperioli. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Him and Michael Imperioli yeah. made multiple films together. Yeah, exactly. Right. Next up, Christopher. Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Twenty Fifth Hour, which is a really fantastic film, um, starring Edward Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, Barry Pepper, and then um, Edward Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman. No, Rosario uh, Dawson. Uh, Rosario Dawson. Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's about a, a, a criminal who's um, being uh, he's been convicted of all of his crimes and he's going to prison um, for a very long time tomorrow. And it's about his last day as a free man before his sentencing begins. And it's what he does over this last day. It's a really terrific look at this man who is coming to terms in, with his life. He's trying to, you know, connect to his past Um right all the wrongs of his life before he's gone and say goodbye to the people who matter most to him and it's a really terrific film really great performances one of the most powerful moments of the film is that great five minute dialogue that Edward Norton's character gives because there's the backdrop of this is immediately after 9-11 this film came out and so it's the backdrop of that on New York City kind of speaking to the city in a way post 9-11 so it's really it's a really emotional film in I like it a lot. Really great performances and acting. But hold on, before that, we get to point out that in 2000, he directed the documentary The Original Kings of Comedy, which is a oh, classic yeah. <laughs> comedy special. Bernie Mac, Cedric the Entertainer, D.L. Hewley, Steve Harvey. Man, that that is a funny special. Yeah. Those guys are iconic. That's actually one of Spike's most successful movies at the box office. Is it really? It's like number three or four. Let's yeah. see if I can find those numbers. Yeah. It's, it was a huge hit. Thirty-eight million box office. Yeah. Whoa, that's, that's a almost, lot for a comedy special. Yeah, that's a lot. That's crazy. All right, let's move on. But I, I love Twenty Fifth Hour. It's a really fantastic and amazing performances. It's all. It's it's like his most. Um, it's it's very relatable. Very uh, emotionally it has great emotional depth, and it's very much a fantastic character piece. All right, let's let's get moving. We're like an hour in so, so far. Oh, yeah. How about 2006? We'll go with Inside Man. Yeah. This is such an underrated heist movie. 
it's kind of like a genius idea. We won't spoil how it happens, but like it makes me want to be a bank robber and think I could pull it off because it's so, <laughs> so damn clever. Stars Clive Owen as this mastermind bank thief, jewel thief, and then Denzel Washington plays the detective assigned to dealing with the the takeover and, of this bank. Yeah. And he's the hostage hostage negotiator, pretty much, and also stars Jodie Foster, Shuatelija Four, and Max von Sydow. Really excellent cast. It's a really great script and so well directed. Uh, Denzel and Clive Owen sharing scenes together is great. Also, Denzel and Jodie Foster, them having scenes together is just like iconic. Like these two heavyweight actors of cinema, and they have multiple sparring matches. It's, it's such a great movie. I really adore it. I think it's it's one of the best heist movies of all time. It really is. And you mixed up the old white guys. It's actually Christopher, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, I'm sorry. Not Max von Sydow. Man, man. Old white guys. These old they, Swedes. <laughs> These old Swedes. <laughs> they, look, they look a lot alike. <laughs> but yeah, Inside Man's great. It's it's so fun. I've seen it like eight times. I yeah. really like this movie. Willem Dafoe's in it too. Oh, he yeah, plays, yeah. He plays, he plays, a, plays cop. a cop. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's great, man. Yeah. But like, I put it in like top 10 heist movie all time for oh, sure. Yeah. It's so good. It's really, really great. And then Spike came out with a his his only war film, Miracle at St. Oh, it's his up to the point. His uh, Miracle at St. Anna. Um, I think it's... um. I, I'll be honest, it's one of his weakest films. It's I don't think that he's suited to war maybe until, you know, The Five Bloods was a different take on war. But it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, I'm not in love with it. I like the, the story and the idea of it, but I just, I'm, I'm not sure the execution was quite there. Over the next several years, he did a ton of music videos, including a couple for Eminem, Kelly Rowland, Cat Williams, TV special for comedy. Um, even did Michael Jackson, I think. Oh, no, that was 2009. He did This Is It music video. He also came out with Old Boy in 2013. So this is a remake of the South Korean masterpiece, which I actually just watched the other day. Did Again. you? I love that movie. Yeah. So, it's in my like top 25 all time. It's favorites. Really it's great. So Old Boy, it's a masterpiece, the original. And when Spike remade it, this movie bombed at the box office. It made $5 million because I think it's not that it's like if you saw this movie – on its own, if Old Boy, the original, didn't exist, it's not a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's fine. But I don't think you can remake a perfect film. You can't remake a masterpiece. And I think that the studio that wanted to do this, they underestimated how much people love the original and how that made them not want to see a remake of that film, to see a, an American Hollywood remake of a great South Korean piece of film. Yeah, I mean, now hopefully... Less foreign films are adapted into American films because, you know, the popularity of things like Squid Game and Parasite showed that they can become very successful in America. Well, Parasite's being adapted into a TV show, I think. Shit, for I forgot. Yeah, with Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> but God I mean, Bong Joon-ho is producing it. Yeah. And writing it, I think. I don't think he's writing it, but he might be producing it. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just um, Old Boy is a perfect film. Also, the South Korean tone, it wasn't. I don't think American audiences were ready for it. I don't think so either. Or understood it. It's a very it's it's a different kind of tone. It's a different kind of filmmaking. Uh, that you know, it's like, like Squid Game. I think people were getting the grasp of it. Uh, Parasite as well. That humor, but it's just a perfect movie. And uh, you have a great cast like Josh Brolin, Elizabeth Olsen, and Charlton Copley. Uh, he's awesome as the villain. But I just think that uh, this proved that like there's no point in remaking a masterpiece of a movie. Just for American audiences, just they'll just, they can just watch Old Boy on their own. I know. I mean, I know it's it's happening more and more often, and they're not always bad. But the thing with Old Boy, Old Boy is a special movie that is like 
one of the best movies ever made, man. That That's so good. How do you remake that? I also don't see, like, I thought it was an odd choice for Spike to pick to make. And that's what I mean. Because I don't think... it's already a great film. I understand if he wants to make a movie from the 50s or 60s that, like, with modern technology and uh, great new storytelling techniques, like, he can make something, uh, imp- not an improvement, but a great new version of a story. But to make a movie that came out only, like, not even 10 years previously... I mean, that, I thought that was a strange pick for him. That's why I said earlier, I don't think Old Boy is a Spike Lee joint. I think it's a Spike Lee film, which is different than mm-hmm. a Spike Lee joint. Maybe, maybe he only does that if he writes it. Maybe, but still, I don't. I, I would. I don't think I'd watch it again. You know, mm-hmm. and it's crazy that like you have these stars in it, and it only made five million. I think that shows you that no one wanted to see it yeah. because of it being what it was. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So it's nothing against Spike. I think if anyone made a sequ- a remake to Old Boy, no one would want to see it. Yeah, and I feel bad because Josh Brolin put him through. A- himself through health during the production at one point he had to he had to lose like 20 pounds in a week and then he had to gain like 15 pounds in a day in a day he ate, he ate like he just kept eating for an entire day to gain weight because he had to show uh weight fluctuation uh and like he like nearly like he had like serious mental problems i mean health problems well the problem with it. that with that with that character which is different than the south korean version where he does lose weight in that one but he He's not like it's not like that was they weren't like let's show his weight difference. Yeah. In the old boy, the remake, he's like absolutely shredded yeah. and yeah. jacked yeah. out of his mind, but they show him uh, overweight first. Yeah. But even with his overweight belly, you can still see he's absolutely yoked underneath. Yeah. Like he's, he's just got like a pot he's belly. Jacked yeah. with a pot belly. And and Josh Brolin seems like naturally a thin guy naturally, so he only gets weight like in his little in like a belly area, whereas in the Bong Joon Ho film he, the actor, he's he has a more full face. You can just tell from his face that he's he's at least forty pounds larger than he is. Yeah, you know what I mean. Where and then in in the Josh Brolin, the old boy one, the, the remake with Spike Lee, Josh Brolin's character when he loses the weight, then he becomes like enormously. He's like just ripped out of his mind. Yeah. But you could see that already before he lost the belly fat, mm-hmm. which didn't really. When I watched, I'm like, how that makes no sense. He's like enormous below this yeah. belly. And also, they just didn't they didn't have the tone of the humor of old boy's original. Like, like you said, it's funny yeah. and the insanity is played for laughs. Like his he's crazy, but it's silly. Whereas Josh Brolin, he's not he, he's not silly. He's just dark and grim. But anyways, let's move on. Moving on. Watch the original. Yeah. <laughs> he made a, a couple of interesting films. The, the Sweet Blood of Jesus, which is kind of his version of a horror film. Um, and also Chirac, which is a Shakespearean adaptation where he... Uh, I can't remember the Shakespearean story or what it's called, but he sets it in gangland Chicago. And then gun violence is the backdrop yeah. of that film. Yeah. And then in 2018... Uh, he showed that he still has it with Black Klansman. It's an amazing movie. And John David Washington is just really excellent. Terrific story. Adam Driver as well. He got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It's funny. It's dramatic. It's got a great story. Um, what's his name was the villain from that 70s show? Oh, um, uh, Topher Grace. Topher Grace. He he did a good job as the, the clan leader. But I just think it was one of the best movies by far that year, without a doubt. It's so good. And the story, it's it's... One of those situations where the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. You know, Ron Stallworth, he was a police officer cadet, and then he was, became the first police officer, the black first black police officer in Colorado Springs, and then he became he wanted to become an undercover cop, and then he infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan using a white surrogate to meet 
Ku Klux Klan members and became a member of the Q- Ku Klux Klan, yeah. which is crazy. And I love he uses like a white guy voice when he talks yeah. to them on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything with the right white man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John David is, is really terrific. And you, he has so much of his dad in him. Like when I saw this, it came up before Tenet. When I saw this, because I, I hadn't seen his TV show Ballers. Yeah. Uh, so this is the first thing I saw John David in. And I was like, this is, this sounds just like Denzel. It's yeah. crazy how much he sounds like him. In Ballers, does he play a running back? Yeah. Because he was a running back in real life. So yeah. John David yeah, Washington was, on the Rams. was in the NFL. Uh, he played a couple seasons, mostly practice squad player. But still, what yeah. an accomplishment to be in the NFL in general. Just to make a team. Like, to make a team is insane. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's because he's Denzel's son. It's like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Why isn't every football team and baseball team full of people's sons yeah. and daughters Fo- and sports teams? Football is all about performance. And if you you can actually get things done. If it doesn't you, matter yeah. whose son you yeah, are. It's all about production. If so, you don't produce, you don't make a team. I think that's a testament yeah. to both the work ethic of John David Washington from being not only successful in NFL and just even if you make the NFL and you're not like a long-term player, that's still a very successful thing to do. And it's not like he was acting in his like yeah. all his life. He was just playing football. But then now to become one of the biggest actors in Hollywood, the same life that's crazy. Two yeah. great accomplishments, a testament to work ethic, but also you could probably say a testament to fatherhood of Denzel Washington probably being a great parent and influence on him in his life. Yeah, I'm sure he instilled and role great model. work ethic and stuff as well. But yeah. to just to be an NFL player then also to be in the biggest movie of the year in 2020 is crazy. I think Denzel is a terrific role model for young people to try to emulate yeah, what I, a career. He's and... definitely a role model for me. He's he's a very a great influence for sure. I love watching just Denzel interviews and yeah. him talking just off camera just just not on film. His speeches at colleges. He's an incredible yeah. speaker and really influential person. Yeah. I mean, to raise someone that becomes an NFL player and a movie star is pretty incredible. Yeah. But yeah, and Adam Driver's in this. He's awesome in this movie. But it's just it's such a crazy movie. It's so fun. <laughs> it's unreal. And a lot of people said this was like Spike Lee's kind of return to form in a way. I don't think he ever lost his form. It's just... They, I mean, I don't... He just <laughs> likes telling the kind of stories that he wants to tell. And, I mean, Chirac is, is kind of like a, a misstep. It was, mm-hmm. It's not great, but I mean, it, it's it's hard to make movies. And he, the thing with Spike is he's he's not making. First of all, he's he's basically writing everything himself, and also he doesn't care about like like how his films are received. He just wants to do what he wants to do, and I think he he purposely makes challenging films. And sometimes challenging films they don't work, and sometimes they don't play, uh, but sometimes they do. And I think that at least he's trying to do something that's different from the Hollywood mold. Okay, and then she's going to have it start in 2017, 2019, 19 show. episodes of the show. And then most recently, his well, he made like a short video called New York, New York, which is pretty cool. I think that was just like an Instagram three-minute short film. I, I think he did it during lockdown. Yeah, you should check yeah. it out. It, in, uh, it's pretty cool. And then The Five Bloods, which was his first Netflix film, came out in 2020 starring uh, Chadwick Boseman, of course, was so good in that movie, as well as Deroy Lindo with the lead role going on. Tells the ex- exploitation and struggles of black soldiers in war. And, you know, at the time, African-Americans were 11% of the U.S. population, but in the Vietnam War, they made up 32% of Vietnam War soldiers. And, you know, the film talks about the black GI. He does a great job. He does it in other past films. It's another trademark where he uses archival footage, documentary footage, real-life footage to splice in with the characters and the storytelling. But I, what I really like about The Five Bloods is he, he switches between four different aspect ratios. So he'll do a mix of present-day jungle digital 16 by 9 and then present-day digital in the cities, ultra-wide. 
and then 16 millimeter Vietnam flashbacks and super eight eight super eight millimeter home style video footage on the riverboat sequences. So like Wes Anderson style, Kinda, changing yeah. the formats. And also, I mean, if you look back at Vietnam War films, there are hardly, if any, black characters at all. Exactly, even though they made up almost a, a third of the population th- of yeah, soldiers. Third, yeah. So that's pretty crazy that I didn't know that statistic of 32%. Yeah, they, they talk about it in the movie because that's mm-hmm. basically one of the themes of the film is the exploitation of the black GI. Mm-hmm. And the ton of great references, references in this movie to past war films, Apocalypse Now, obviously, and then The Treasure of Sierra Madre has a bunch of references too, plus some others. Yeah, again, showing his love for the history of cinema in his filmmaking. Delroy is really, really good in this movie too. He has a bunch of great monologues. Yeah, he and, plays the dad in Crooklyn. And uh, yeah, he's yeah. one of his... his uh, Frequent collaborators. Yeah, a few other movies too. And then is is this the this is one of the last movies that Second Chadwick last, is in? Yeah. And then um so yeah that pretty much covers his films from now on. We already talked about the movies he's got coming up with the uh, the the Viagra. musical about Viagra, which I would love. I can't wait to see. And then Prince of Cats. He's also he also made a TV miniseries documentary about the New York epicenters nine eleven to twenty twenty one and a half, which came out in twenty twenty one. And, you know, obviously can't wait to see the rest of this guy's career. We and, always get excited when he's got a new movie coming out. And unfortunately, he's going to keep watching the New York Knicks lose. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Poor guy. Well, we've been losing it. Well, we we lost Tom Brady, so we'll be losing for yeah, a long time. At least too. we won a bunch. <laughs> Poor but Knicks. Hey, man, you got to respect that. You yeah. know, he represents his, his yeah. team. And he his never city. strays. You know, we, yeah. we'll never not be Patriots he lo- he's fans. He's a Brooklyn guy. Yeah. He's from he's exactly. Brooklyn. So even though we lost Brady, we're going to not be in the Super Bowl for a long time, probably. We'll always be Pats fans. No <laughs> Maybe never again <laughs> always be <red> st- <laughs> maybe bill will get there but you know bill's probably got five years left he's getting kind of old <laughs> but spike's one of the best all time you know this guy's career is it, it's excellent and he's again he's covered all kinds of different topics different styles of film he's made some of the best movies of all time you know you could put a couple on that list for sure and he's just an icon big time that you was got, a great episode you got you got some trivia or anything no i don't i don't have any trivia no i'm i got some- left I got some about some specific movies. Let's hear it. In Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee originally wanted Robert De Niro for the role of Sal Ragione, but De Niro turned down the part saying it was too similar to many of the parts he had played in the past. In the end, the part went to Danny Aiello. De Niro's photo is one of the pictures that appear on Sal's Wall of Fame from the film God from the film The Godfather Part Two. Both De Niro and Aiello appeared alongside in The Godfather Part Two and in Once Upon a Time in America. For Malcolm X, Spike Lee originally requested $33 million for this film, a reasonable sum considering its size and scope, but much more than his previous budgets. Because Lee's Lee's five previous films combined and had grossed less than $100 million domestically, Warner Brothers offered $20 million for a two-hour, 15-minute film, plus $8 million from Largo Entertainment for the foreign rights. But the film went... $5 $5 million over budget. Lee kicked in most of his salary, but but, but the finances shut down post-production. Lee went public with his battles and raised funds from celebrity friends, including Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, Bill Cosby, to regain control of the project. After a positive screening of a rough cut, Warner Brothers kicked in more funds. To prepare for his role in Malcolm X, Denzel Washington avoided eating pork, attended Fruit of Islam classes, and learned to Lindy Hop. He was so in character that he even knew which pair of glasses Malcolm X was wearing on a particular day. In The Five Bloods, the five bloods that were seen throughout the movie in present-day scenes were named Paul, Melvin, Otis, Eddie, and David. 
These are also the individual names of the five members of African-American vocal group, The Temptations. Their fallen blood, who was the leader and inspiration for the others during their days in the Vietnam War, was named Norman. Songwriter Norman Whitfield produced virtually all of The Temptations' music during their time in Motown Records during the 60s and 70s. In The Five Bloods, the reason why the characters appear old during the war flashbacks is because it isn't a flashback, but instead it is the characters remembering the past. Therefore, they remember the past with their current age. It also symbolizes that in their mind, they are still in Vietnam and will continue to be in Vietnam, never fully being able to move on from that war. Apocalypse Now is referenced multiple times in The Five Bloods, including a featured nightclub is named after and shows the artwork for the classic film. In the famous Wagner piece, Flight of the Valkyries also plays during a scene in which the men are traveling on a boat going down the river, just as they do in Apocalypse Now, which is a reference to Joseph Conrad's book, The Heart of Darkness. For Black Klansman, the real Ron Stallworth had originally wanted Denzel Washington to play him, but was ecstatic to find out that his son, John David Washington, got the role. Contrary to popular belief, in Black Klansman, the real Ron Stallworth never used a white voice on the phone. He ironically had to use his real voice, or they would have caught him if he slipped out of character. When his white colleagues told him to when his white colleagues told him it could not work, he asked what made his voice any different from others, and they never answered. Actor Topher Grace said in an interview with IndieWire for Black Klansman that portraying David Duke left him feeling depressed. So as an act of catharsis, he took on the project of himself editing Peter Jackson's trilogy of films based on The Hobbit into a single two-hour movie. I remember he did that on social media. <laughs> I can only imagine how it made him feel to play David Duke. Jeez. Black Klansman contains clips from The Birth of a Nation, which came out in 1915. When Spike Lee was a student at NYU Film School, he was so outraged that his professors taught the movie with no mention of its racist message or its role in the Klan's 20th century rebirth that he made the answer in 1980 as a response. Many professors took great offense, and Lee was nearly expelled. He ultimately was saved by a faculty vote. After Lee's film's industry success, he became a professor at NYU Film School and artistic director of the graduate film department. John David Washington claimed that although he had known Spike Lee due to his father Denzel Washington's long collaborations with them, the two of them were not close acquaintances prior to Black Klansmen. In fact, when Washington received a text message from Lee saying he wanted to talk about a role, he wasn't sure whether to believe it since he did not have Lee's number in his contact list and had never received a text from him before. All right, that wraps our episode on the great Spike Lee. If you haven't seen any of these movies, I highly recommend checking them out because he is one of the greatest of all time. Please become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Take care and thanks so much for tuning around the world. This was a Raiders of the Lost podcast joint. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.